HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. And boy, do I have some insights today. Um, So yeah, we're going to be talking with one of my very favorite guests, uh, Tom Philpott, in case you don't know him. Tom is the food and agriculture correspondent for Mother Jones. He is also the co-founder of Maverick Farms, a center for sustainable food education in um, Valley Cruces, North Carolina. And he was formerly a columnist and editor for the online environmental site Grist. And his work on food politics has appeared in Newsweek, Gastronomica, and The Guardian, as well as others, I'm sure. Um, Tom, thanks so much for doing the show. I'm so sorry I like spaced on this, but I'm telling you the jet lag from Australia, it hurts. It really hurts. Uh, no problem, Katie. Just glad you're back safe. Uh, yeah, no, it was a great trip. We had a really good time. Uh, we were uh, wined and dined royally, taken all around um, cattle and sheep ranches and uh, slaughterhouses in Queensland and New South Wales. And uh, Well, all... it sounds like the ultimate ag nerd tour. It totally Australia. was, man. I was like, I was so in my element. And um, I'm sure I drove the chefs that I was traveling with absolutely insane. <laughs> I, I mean, bet. I was and, just um, relentless. What is the water situation there in Australia? I understand it's pretty constrained in general. It is pretty constrained in general, but like the, the sort of the Napa Valley area, which I would say is the, the New South Wales where their wine grows, you know, all their wineries are and stuff yep. like that. That seemed pretty verdant to me. Um, and uh, they didn't seem to be um, in any great uh, distress. Uh, there certainly are areas of drought, but they don't seem to be um, all that concerned about it. I think they're kind of used to it. Um, yeah. And then, you know, in the Queensland area, they um, this is a, another entire discussion, but just uh, I'll just briefly say that what they do there is breed their animals to be able to withstand various climate issues, including right. hot and dry. So unlike what we do when we breed cattle, which is sort of like breed to the breed, um, they breed to the climate. And um, that's you know, right. that's going to be another entire show. But that was so interesting to me. And, um, you know, yeah. among the many, many other things that were interesting and exciting and inspiring about their agricultural systems, um, which don't seem to be. And I will conclude this part of the program now. Um, they don't seem to be um, basically dictated by lobbyists. 
It's, uh, huh. it's, it's a much cleaner situation over there. And um, you and I will talk about that another time. But anyway, let us talk. Let us get right into the business of the business here. And um, we are talking about two pieces, well, two sort of longstanding um, issues that you've been covering for Mother Jones and I think before that for Grist. Um, and one of them is the algae blooms uh, that we heard about in the early part of August uh, in Toledo, Ohio. Um, but they are by no means the only city that has experienced um, these giant blue-green algae blooms that are attributable to um, various toxins that are entering their water system. Um, so why don't you give us an update on what's happening in Toledo now? Because, you know, the mayor famously drank a glass of water. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was you know, so inspired so, by that. You know, basically, you? <laughs> um, about a month ago, I think it was, um, yeah. they, uh, the city water uh, treatment people there uh, got a reading from their their city water saying that it was unsafe to drink based on this toxin that comes out from blue green algae, and right. they they draw their water from uh, uh, Lake Erie, right. a very particular part of Lake Erie that we'll get into a little bit more in a second. But um, and so they basically had to um, shut down. They didn't shut down the water, but they had to put a warning at the citizens: please don't drink this water. It's got you know, alarming levels of this toxin that can cause liver damage. and mm. uh, At the very taking, least, it makes you very sick. It's, you know, like it may, food it poisoning. Very, it can yeah. make you very sick immediately. <laughs> and, um, and if you drink too much of it over time, you can get liver, liver damage. Right. So for about 48 hours, the, um, the uh, residents of the city were, set, were told, don't drink the water and don't think you can boil it and clean it that way. It'll, it'll just concentrate the toxin. Oh, great. Um, and, so, and so it... Um, it you know, it sparked predictably like any of us would do. Um, everyone, everyone ran out and got as much as, as much bottled water as they could, and sure. there was a coordinated effort to move it into the city. But um, this is not the kind of thing that inspires confidence um, in, in your city's uh, water supply. No. And so, predictably enough, you're asking about about an update. Um, several weeks on, uh, the city is dealing with constant rumors of, of another um, toxin scare, um, rumors that uh, another warning is going to come out and let's drink the water imminently. Uh, you're seeing runs on water. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the sort of the city officials and the mayor are kind of be- beside themselves trying to deal with this is what, um, is what I'm reading in the local media from sure. up there. Have you and checked so, you know, in it with... Makes it, a, it makes it a very uh, sort of insecure situation. Um, and I think a lot of people there, um, even before this latest scare, because, you know, this has been going on for a while. Oh, yeah. Uh, and a nearby community, a small community that, that gets draws its water from a different place in, in Lake Erie had a situation very, very similar last year. And I think these are the first in, instances in the U.S., of people being told they can't drink their water based on these blue-green algae blooms and the toxins that they generate. So let's let's go back for a second and deconstruct what is the blue-green algae and what uh, it's. I think mycocystin or something is the name of the That's right. toxin. And um, and what what causes this blue-green algae and what can be done about it? Right. Okay. So um, Lake Erie, it's you know obviously in the Upper Midwest. And the part where um, where this town, this, the city of Toledo, draws draws its water, is kind of in the, the southeastern um, corner of of Lake Erie. 
And it's in a part where a huge amount of corn and soy farming drains into uh, it's sort of this basin where runoff from these these, these areas drain into the lake. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's a pretty simple concept. So there's a lot of fertilizer going on these farms. Yeah. Um, and a lot of uh, nitrogen and phosphorus that, uh, that, you know, sort of stimulates plant growth. These are obviously key nutrients for plants. Sure. But when they run off into the water, they don't stop stimulating plant growth. And so they go in, they get into the water. And um, for reasons I don't fully understand, in freshwater situations like in a lake, uh, phosphorus is a key nutrient. And in saltwater situations like down in the Gulf of Mexico, uh-huh. nitrogen is a key nutrient. Oh, but these are, so these are, you know, agricultural nutrients, you know, these are sort of plant nutrients. Yeah. And um, as they get into the lake, they stimulate these algae blooms. And so they're, they're feeding these algae blooms. And I'm looking right now at a, at a map um, that was on the article. It's sort of a satellite image that's yeah. on the article that I posted on this uh, a couple of weeks ago um, on August 6th. And, um, you know, from outer space, you can see the, uh, the, the, the green algae wow. um, covering a huge swath of this lake. Wow. And so this toxin, so what, what happens is, um, well, a lot of bad things happen. One, one thing that happens is that <laughs> as, the, as the bloom dies, it ties up oxygen uh-huh. in the water. And so you, you, you basically get water that can't support any life because there's not enough oxygen in it. So you get these dead zones in the lake, and that's, that's a big problem. And that's um, similar but, to the dead zones we have in Chesapeake Bay and in the Gulf of Mexico, yeah. right? I mean, they may be caused right. by phosphorus same, same versus nitrogen. phenomenon, but those are fed right. by ni- more by nitrogen than phosphorus. Because right, because they're, they're salt water. Salt water. Yeah. But it's yeah. the same so idea. So that's all the same. But uh, luckily no one is, you know, trying to drink water out of the Chesapeake Bay or um, <laughs> right. the Gulf of Mexico. That would be awful. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, but they are drinking it out of Lake Erie. And so what, what happens is a town like, or a city like Toledo, I should say, um, will have an inlet, like an inlet pipe um, out in the lake. Mm-hmm. And it will draw water to it. It'll do what it, whatever it does to purify it mm-hmm. and send it out to its municipal system. Um, but what happens is that um, there is a toxin associated with, um, with blue-green algae that is gen- it, it isn't always generated by, in, in every blue-green algae situation, but it can be generated by the blue-green algae and build up. Right. And, uh, and that's exactly what happened here. And, um, and so, so that the city, you know, there, there are, I don't believe the EPA has a monitoring program uh-huh. for this toxin. And so the, I think Toledo is acting, is you know doing the best it can with a you know terrible hand that it's dealt because it's constantly testing the water for this toxin and it's on the lookout for it and um, it come you know it, there's a, a level that I'm um, looking up for right here it's a certain number of parts per billion over which it can't be and they're constantly testing for it so it's, it's pretty much always there at low levels but uh-huh. when it, when you get a spike like this. Um, is is when it, when it causes concern. Unbelievable. How many other places in the states? Because that map shows like a lot of places where these blue green algae uh, blooms are existing, and a lot of them were in the Northeast. I was surprised to see. Am I am I reading that correctly? 
Yeah, they are um, looking at the map right now, and they are all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, anywhere where you get large amounts of agriculture. Now, one thing that is uh, is critical to understand is that uh, you know your sort of agribusiness kind of take on this question would be you know something like yeah, this is obviously very unfortunate that um, that you know people's drinking water occasionally gets compromised. But you can't blame this completely on agriculture mm-hmm. because there's municipal waste, there, there's sewage that gets treated and then um, put back into water supplies. Sure. There's, there's, there's natural phosphorus and nitrogen in soil. And the answer to that is, is pretty clear that um, Lake Erie was, was nearly dead, you know, very famously 30 or 40 years ago. And at that. one point it, it set on fire. Mm-hmm. And um, and at this time, uh, it was getting lots of monster. It was getting industrial. It was getting agriculture waste, but agriculture wasn't quite as intensive as, as it is now. Right. But it was getting, you know, in some cases, raw sewage and a lot um, of industrial lots, waste. Lots of, yeah, lots of industrial phosphorus. Yeah. Uh, phosphorus is an industrial uh, waste product in several industries. So it's getting a lot of industrial. Um, um, you know, pollution that included phosphorus. And, and so the, the, the giant algae blooms it was getting in that era uh, were legitimately caused by municipal waste, industrial waste, and so on. And agriculture played a role, but it wasn't the dominant role. And then um, the sort of controversy around that sparked the, the Clean Water Act in the early 70s. Right. And when the Clean Water Act was passed, it actually did a really, really good job of dramatically slowing down those other sources of uh, of pollution. And there's a great chart on my on my post that I pulled from a, a report, um, the Ohio Lake uh, Lake Erie Phosphorus Task Force, that shows you know you can see um, the, the the fall, the steady fall throughout the 70s, and, and it stayed very low. Um, of industrial phosphorus going into Lake Erie. But what happened simultaneously was that's when you start to really get the ramping up of uh, corn and soy production mm-hmm. and the falling away of other crops, crop rotation, just sort of the uh, in- intensification, the spread onto more marginal lands. And you can see on that chart that uh, along around the same time that the industrial phosphorus is falling, the agriculture-related phosphorus is rising, and flash forward to now, and it's by far the dominant source of phosphorus. Going, I mean, you can just look at this chart, and it obliterates the um, agribusiness case that, oh, well, it, it could be these other things. Um, we're not really responsible for it. And so you get the situation where, you know, we're almost, we're not back to 70s levels, but we're we're back we're back to uh, mid seventies levels. We're not back to you know in the sixties it was a free for all, and we're not right. we're not back up there yet. But we're getting back to to where uh, these blooms are appearing again. Um, you know that they they dropped away for many years. For a couple yeah. of decades, they weren't a significant problem, and now they're back with a vengeance. And agriculture is definitely the driver of yeah. it. Well, you know, that creates a perfect segue for our next segment. Um, so why don't we take a quick uh, and short sponsor drop now, and we'll be right back with Tom Philpot to talk more about agriculture in the United States. Uh, so stay tuned. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain, 
above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com. So uh, we are back. This is What Doesn't Kill You, uh, Food Industry Insights. Uh, my name is Katie Kiefer. I think I might have forgotten to introduce myself before. And we are broadcasting from the Heritage Radio Network, just in case there are people who are just tuning in for the very first time. Um, and so on the line today is my guest, Tom Philpot, the food and agriculture correspondent for Mother Jones Magazine. And we were having a fascinating discussion about uh, agriculture in the United States and specifically how agriculture is having an impact on our water supplies. And then... I, and since we're talking about corn and soy, um, that leads us right into something else that you've been covering for a really long time, Tom, and that is neonicotinoid um, pesticides. And yes. um, that is another aspect of uh, that is having an impact not only on water quality, but especially on that seems to be um, the cause of col- colony collapse disorder and a host of other ills. So um, let's talk about that a little bit. You know, give us a sense of like where when you started getting interested in this, because, you know, looking back through all your articles, I could see you've been on the story for at least three years. And three years ago, I think people were really still scratching their heads about colony collapse disorder at the very least. And, yeah. uh, and now it seems to be becoming more and more clear that it's uh, this kind of pesticide. So tell us about your reporting journey there, and then we'll talk more about what they are. Yeah, I started writing about neonic pesticides probably 2010 or 11. Mm-hmm. And how I got onto the story was um, I, had, uh, I had heard that a um, that a beekeeper in Illinois who was concerned about colony collapse disorder, and in the heart of uh, corn and soy country, and let's just you know say right off that these pesticides are used universally in corn and soy and several other crops too. So yeah. they you know they really do blanket the country um, in agriculture areas, and also they're they're widely used in sort of golf courses and landscaping and wow. even home gardens. So that you know they're 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 really, really prevalent. Um but so this uh this beekeeper has been um suspecting them of uh of maybe playing a role in colony collapse and decline of bee health. And he had been uh you know, sort of in contact with the EPA, trying to figure out what the EPA's stance on it was and looking at the EPA's um, process for approving these products, which had been approved in the late 90s and early 2000s, sort of one by one. There, there are several neonic um, chemicals that are slightly different, all in the same family. Mm-hmm. And um, he, got a, he got a leaked document from someone that EPA leaked him a document uh, that was very interesting. And it basically said that so when the, these companies and the companies in in, uh, in question here are Bear and Syngenta, and Bear is a it's a big European. They're both big European. Is that Bear Aspirin? Agrochemical companies, and um, and and so Bear. Um, so the EPA process is that the companies submit data and studies showing that their products aren't harmful, mm-hmm. and. Concern, you know, neonics were concerned about bees from the word jump because no one disputes that they're actually toxic to bees. 
Um, the question is, at the level that they are used in fields, are they toxic? Are they, you know, in field-relevant situations, are they a significant problem for bees? Mm-hmm. And so um, EPA asked Bayer to submit some data on that, and they submitted a study um, finding that they were completely harmless. Really? And so, yeah, so this is going through this EPA process. And I don't want to get too bogged down into details, but the EPA has got this very kind of dodgy system where it will grant conditional registration. And that, that's saying, well, we're not convinced that your product is safe because you haven't given us the data yet. But we're going to go ahead and let you use it, uh, and then and we'll wait for you to get us your data. So they were, uh, you know, so this by is large, really unbelievable. Um, yeah, approved under conditional uh, registration, mm-hmm. and then at a certain point, like 2010, one of them close in close in the end, and I always have trouble pronouncing these neonic pesticides. Um, got full registration, and this study that that they're submitted. Was was the main reason why it got uh, full registration? The study saying that it was completely safe. Yeah, so it, it it became like fully registered. They could use it. It was declared safe for bees, according to EPA. Um, what the document showed was that EPA scientists found the the study to be deeply flawed. Uh-huh. It was just sort of bad science. They hadn't done a careful job of isolating the you know the controls and the non controls and. Didn't give them enough, you know, range. It was just, according to the EPA itself, just really bad science. And so when I sort of figured all that out and read through the documents, um, I got really interested in the question. And at that time, there was, you know, some good studies out implicating neonics and colony collapse disorder and other problems that uh, the honeybees are having. Um, But since that time... There, there have been a bunch of studies. I would say a weight of evidence has come out. And, you know, here's the thing. Um, county cloud disorder is very complicated, and it probably isn't accurate to say that neonics are the cause because there are many factors impacting honeybees right now. There's uh-huh. loss of habitat. Um, there's less biodiversity out there. There is um, this thing we do where we basically move about half our honeybees once a year to California, no matter where they are, to pollinate the uh, almond crop, and that mm-hmm. stresses them out. Um, um, honeybee users, honeybee makers often you know, feed high, you know, high fructose corn syrup uh, in the off-season when there's not uh, foraging, and that doesn't turn out to be a very good um, way to feed them. So there's all, there are all these different factors. Uh-huh. And then, then you get a couple of, uh, you get, there's a, um, there's a mite, which is a, um, which is a parasite that um, was introduced in the 80s from Japan that affects honeybees. And there's also a couple of viruses that, um, that affect honeybees. Jesus. But the way that neonics appear to, so you got all these factors. And you can think of it like as this murder mystery. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's a good metaphor or not, but you have all I these like different it. factors Let's that are probably playing a, playing a role. Yeah. But it appears as though neonics are the thing that pushes it over the edge. Mm-hmm. They're the thing that, that uh, you know, if you could take that away. Because one of the things that they do uh, at very low levels at, at, what we call uh, sub-lethal levels, where it's not enough to kill the bee, knock it over dead, right? but it's, it's affecting the bee. It makes bees uh, less effective. This is uh, study after study has shown this. It makes them less 
less effective foragers. It makes uh, colonies less uh, adept at producing new queens. Wow. Um, it, so it, fl- uh, it, it, it impacts them. their immunity. It appears to impact their immunity to some of these uh-huh. pathogens and viruses that are in the atmosphere naturally. And right. so what it's doing is it's making, uh, it appears to be making honeybee hives less resilient to all these, all these stressors that are out there. Right. And that if you could take away that stressor, then they would be more resilient to these, to these things and, and maybe thrive better. Uh-huh. That, 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 I'd say, is the best way to state the science, is, is that they're demonstrably making our, our, our honeybees, and not, not just honeybees, but also bumblebees and other pollinators, right. uh, l- less resilient to all this other stuff we're throwing at them. Right. And you also mentioned that they, it's having an impact on birds, that there are some yeah. bird species that are having uh, that are being turning up dead more, and there have been some big bird die-offs in the last few years, haven't there? Like that just occurs to me yeah. now. Wasn't there a couple of like, you know, entire flocks of something just rained down on people's lawns one like two years ago in the south? Yeah, I think there have been been a couple of those, and 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 that that bit has surprised me. This uh, this connection to birds—it's um, only kind of emerging in the last year, year and a half. Well, they eat the insects, but so why wouldn't they develop? A... They eat the insects, and they and they also—I uh, mean—that's one way that they would take them up. And then right. also, you Drink get less forage for them because if you're killing that many insects, if you're like yeah. doing this broad-based kill-off of insects, then there's less forage for birds, and so that. In, impacts them in that way as well. And what I wrote about uh, earlier this, I guess, late July, was this new study from the U.S. Geological Survey finding that um, in waters in the Midwest, they're just full of neonics. Um, they're just right. everywhere. Right. And that, that has impacts on, you know, you think about that, um, in that sort of uh, ecological food chain that, that birds rely upon, mm-hmm. if you get neonics in water, and, and the neonics in the water are, are killing for, you know, the insects that they would forage on, the, the sort of waterborne creatures that they would forage on, it's giving them less to forage on, and yep. it, it has these sort of ecological knock-on effects. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's like this cascading uh, disaster you're watching unfold slowly but surely in front of your eyes. I, the thing that's so interesting about it, so we started using these in the 90s, is that what you said? And this we started was, using them in the, in, the, in the 90s, and then they really explode in corn country right. um, in the early 2000s. Basically, they, they kind of take over the corn crop around 2004 mm-hmm. and um, and start to, to rise dramatically ever since. Now, is corn this, and soybeans. And soy and other crops, as you mentioned. Um, and is, are yeah. they, are the neonicotinoid uh, class of pesticide, this is rising up in conjunction with the increased use of Roundup Ready crops? Is that sort of like the whole thing well, is kind of all part and parcel of what? Of, well, you know, there's a lot of debate about about how that works, but one thing that we can say, I think, is that um, if you if you think about BT corn, let's say, right, with you know, because Roundup Ready, um, it, you know, it's hard to figure out a, a relationship with that because Roundup is an herbicide, and yeah. you know, maybe by but they taking still have out to more use weeds, pesticides, right? Yeah, there's some impact, but but BT corn. Um, Started in earnest in the in the mid '90s, and then mm-hmm. by the 2000s, almost all corn is now is now BT. So yeah. it's expressing this 
insecticide. Right. The one thing I find really oh. interesting is that the industry says that since you've got this stuff in the corn, you're going right. to need less, you know, fewer pesticides. Yeah, right. That's and, what I thought the yet, whole point of it was. And yet, at the same time, you get this universal embrace of, of neonics. And so it, it, you can at least say that BT corn did not, you know, solve the insect problem if, uh, if these, these farmers are relying so much on on neonics, uh, yeah. but you know, it's it's also there's a seed industry story here too because mm-hmm. uh, these neonics are, are seed treatments, um, and so it's it's just really interesting technology. Instead of spraying neonics in the field in corn in corn and soy country, they, they do it in other like in landscaping. They they might spray neonics, right. but in corn and soy country, you buy seeds that are treated with them, and so what happens is you plant it. And they're taken up actually in the crop, in the leaves, uh-huh. in the pollen, and the nectar of the crop right. as it grows. And so they're, they're they're just sort of ubiquitous in these fields, and um, and it's really hard now to get corn and soy that isn't treated with neonics. It's just sort of what the companies are doing now. It's just part of your package. And so when you buy your corn seed, you know if you go with the flow of what most farmers do now what most seed suppliers are are selling now you're getting corn with a couple different bt genes a couple of neonics treated with them and and so you're getting this corn that's got all these pesticides built into it and you know it's like uh it's almost analogous to feeding your livestock antibiotics every day on the idea that, well, I'm going to prevent a disease. You know, I'm not going to wait for a disease to start up. I'm going to right. go ahead and try to prevent it right. before it happens. Right. And that's kind of the mentality we're getting with these crops. Like, let's, well, let's, let's, see, let's treat the seeds and right. let the insects work themselves right. out before we ever see a problem. But I, I got to go back to this concept of, like, the whole point of Roundup Ready, of BT corn and, you know, modified soy and all of that was – Partly to, uh, you know, to express uh, a pesticide. So why yeah. are they using, why is it, if this is going to be such an effective technology, why is it that neonicotinoids came up just about at the same time and became this blanket use? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm well, scratching my head over that. Like, I really hadn't made that connection until we had this conversation. Like, I didn't realize that they were... Using even though they're doing BT corn, which is theoretically going to repel insects in by its very nature, yeah. and yet at the same time they're blanketing these crops, these seeds with another yet another pesticide. So why do they even I mean, need I, I, that? I think the part of it is this mentality in industrial agriculture mm-hmm. that you you have to maximize yield. You right. have to ha- you have to like take every precaution possible. And you know, especially if you look at this, at this you know, the last ten years, um, you know, by the mid two thousands, we're seeing this this huge rise in corn prices based yeah. on ethanol, which is now um, being um, pulled back. Right, right, it's being phased out in the last year or so. But um, but you're seeing this uh, this this spike in, in corn and soy prices, and I think there's this mentality of I want to catch every bit of that as possible, and if I pay a little bit extra for my corn uh, because it's got a couple of neonics uh, built into it, 
that's going to be worth it because it's like an insurance policy against right. insect problems. I will insure myself maximum yield, and when I go to sell my corn at six or seven bucks a, um, a bushel, yeah. uh, I'll, I'll be cashing in as much as possible. I think that's the sort of mentality mm. of like you you don't wait for a problem to develop; you try to nip it in the bud before it happens. Right. But you're you're not thinking about the overall impact. You know, one thing that that should be said is that these these neonics are. They they are marketed, and to an extent, they really do replace older, more more harsh chemicals uh-huh. that um, that are way more toxic to, to humans. And yeah. I think that the that, that is a big deal. Sure. But I think that you know the the answer to you know I think we talked about this before, Katie. If if you're a, a corn or soy pest, if you're some insect, let's say that likes to eat corn, yeah, there's no better there's no better uh, event for you than to blanket huge amounts of corn of, uh, of, of acres in the exact same kind of corn right. every year. Right. You've got this smorgasbord laid out for you. <laughs> yeah, so that yeah. increases it increases pest pressure and increases um, you know the desire to have insecticides. Sure. So a way better answer to phasing out these older, really nasty pesticides is through biodiversity. And that just means crop rotation. Sure. Put, you know, instead of doing corn, corn, corn every year, or corn, soy, you know, two years of corn, one year of soy, work other crops into rotation, oats, yeah. wheat. And, uh, and this not only reduces the need for pesticide, but this gets us back to the first part of our conversation. Right. It also reduces the need for fertilizers. That's right. Um, if you are... Because you're and, treating and the herbicide. soil correctly. It, it breaks up weed patterns, pest right. patterns, and it's better for the soil. Yeah. Fascinating. Tom, unfortunately, we have to leave it there. I know that you are working on a story about almonds, and I can't wait to read it, and I can't wait to talk to you about that. So keep me in the loop on uh, on the almond story, because um, I've loved some of your posts. <laughs> All, all, right. the, all the hipsters who are well, like look, outraged that you're telling them not to drink their almond milk, you know, that's, that's like crazy. Well, I look forward to hearing your stuff in Australia. Oh, dude, uh, yeah, I'll be right. Well, I have to write the story up for food arts, but then I'm also going to, I think, write something up for the Huffington Post. So I'll pass that along to you when I get that together. So, yeah, it was exactly. a great, it was a really interesting trip. And, um, well, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you all about it the next time I see you, actually. I hope you're coming up to New York. Oh, I'll see you at Chef's Collaborative, right? Are you, um, I, you don't know I, yet? At where? Chef's Collaborative, Chef's Collaborative in Boulder? Are you doing I that? I don't know yet. Aha. Uh-huh. All right. Well, the plot thickens. Anyway, Tom, thanks a million for doing this with me today. I really appreciate it. Fascinating conversation, as always. And uh, we'll be talking again real soon. Thanks for listening, right. folks. And we'll be back uh, the day after, or the week after Labor Day. So long, and thank you for listening, and thanks to my sponsor. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.